If you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 2. You can find that on page 909 of the Red Pew Bible. So, Acts, chapter 2. This morning, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. So, Acts 2, verses 1 through 11. Well, in 1965, scientists at the University of Florida introduced a new thirst-quenching sports drink at the request of their head coach, Ray Graves. When you play hard, you get dehydrated. And Graves was looking for a way to give his team an edge as they played in the Florida Heat. Now, they called this concoction Gatorade. And when Florida managed to win its first Orange Bowl game over Georgia Tech a couple of years later, the sports world really took notice. Since then, Gatorade has made its way into almost every sports arena you can imagine, getting endorsements from professional athletes like Michael Jordan, Serena Williams, even Tiger Woods. From peewee football to swim meets and soccer games, it's almost impossible to go to a sporting event without seeing that orange lightning bolt somewhere, even if it's just on the team water bottles. Now, as a kid playing sports, it was kind of a special treat for me to get Gatorade. Uh, we would, uh, you'd, you'd watch these, these commercials, and there's one that really stuck out in my mind as I was thinking about this. Uh, you'd, you'd see these commercials on TV where these amazing athletes, it's all in black and white, and I'm not that old. It was actually shot in black and white. Um, and then you'd see these athletes playing, and they'd be sweating, literally sweating Gatorade out of their pores as they dominated on the field. And then you'd hear this voice, Gatorade. Is it in you? Uh, as weird as those commercials were, that was a successful ad campaign. It got me thinking, man, if only I could have Gatorade, then I could be a professional athlete too. It worked. <laughs> the truth is that Gatorade, while it may take the edge off your thirst, it can't actually make you a successful athlete. That takes time, talent, hard work, and opportunity. So it stands that while Gatorade has a catchy slogan, it doesn't ultimately matter if it's in you or not. Well, this morning, I want to look at something that does matter if it's in you or not. Not for the sports arena, but for who we are in Christ. And that is the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no way and no how for us to live as we are called to in Christ. If you want to be like Christ then his spirit has got to be in you. There is no other way. Now, for the past two weeks, we've been studying uh, Acts chapter 1, looking at Jesus' calling on his disciples to be his witnesses, to be proclaimers of the good news of salvation uh, through him. And we've, seen, we've been looking at how Jesus prepared his followers and how he equipped them for that work. But even as Jesus called his church to this urgent task of sharing the good news of his life, death, and resurrection, we see in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, that Jesus first told his disciples to wait in the city until they had received the promise of the Father. That is, until they had received power to do this work when the Holy Spirit came upon them. So the Holy Spirit, we see, isn't an enhancement to the work of the body of Christ here on earth. He is the very power that is at work in the church, which is equipping us to answer Christ's call. 
It is vital that we make this connection because the work of the Holy Spirit is so often misunderstood and even misused in Christian circles today in a way that really distracts from the purpose and the plan that God has given to his people. So this morning, as we launch into Acts chapter 2, and as we witness the spectacular way that God has equipped the church to be witnesses of the good news of Jesus Christ, our goal this morning should be to recapture a proper understanding of the vital role of the Holy Spirit in our own lives. So let's begin this morning by reading this passage together. If you would, please stand once again with me as I read from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, of all the events that Luke has recorded for us in this book, it is hard to think of a more defining moment in the life of the early church than this. This is where the body of Christ took its first breath and began to proclaim the good news of Christ to the world. It's a moment that stretches the imagination a bit, but which confirms the reality of the kingdom of God and the power of the gospel. So while Christians may debate among themselves about all that this day signifies, no one disputes the fact that this was a crucial moment for the church and for redemptive history. And I'll just go ahead and warn you about that because because of that, we're actually going to be spending a significant amount of time over the next few weeks poring over this chapter in particular. Today, our focus is going to be spent looking at what specifically happened on this day and what it signifies about God's commitment to the glory of his name and the name of Jesus Christ. So the main idea uh, that we see in this passage, the main idea I have for you this morning in this sermon is this. God gives his church power to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world. God gives his church power to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world. Now, we're going to explore that priority together uh, this morning in three points. First, we're going to see a powerful presence. A powerful presence. Second, 
We'll be looking at a promised people, a promised people. And finally, we'll be looking at proof in the prophecy, proof in the prophecy. First, we want to look at this powerful presence that we see coming on uh, the apostles and the disciples who were gathered together. And in this, we want to see specifically how God was at work dwelling in his people and working through his people. Now, I learned a long time ago that you should always stock up on batteries at Christmas time and around birthdays. Uh, there is just nothing that takes the edge of excitement off the moment quite like realizing that you've got this cool gift or this cool gadget that you can't use right now because it has no power. Not everything comes with batteries included. And so it is with the body of Christ. We rely on a power that is not our own to do the work that God has called us to do. When Jesus commissioned his disciples to go into all the world to be his disciples, he did not send them out He did not expect them to go in their own power. Even as Jesus sends his people out into the world, we see that he makes makes it clear that the success of that mission is not in any way dependent on our innate talents or abilities. In fact, as we look look specifically here, uh, and when you look at Jesus' disciples, you don't see these learned men who had wisdom, who were charismatic and able to attract a crowd to themselves. We don't see men who were, or people really, who were able to bring resources uh, to the table in order to enhance this mission on their own. No, what do you see? You see Galileans. You see fishermen. You see women. You see a a zealot, a a former assassin, and even a tax collector. People who were generally looked down on by society. These were not your social influencers. They were common people called to do an extraordinary task that was beyond them, which could only be accomplished by the power of God. And that's what makes the events surrounding the day of Pentecost so significant. Now, if you remember back to what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, you'll see why Jesus' instructions to return to Jerusalem and to wait there were, were so important. Just as a flashlight can't shine without batteries, so also the church depends on the Holy Spirit to empower it to be the body of Christ on earth. From its very beginning, the book of Acts really is the story of Jesus' work to expand his kingdom through the church, beginning with what we see here on the day of Pentecost. Now, at the time, Pentecost was a really big deal. It was actually one of three of the big pilgrim festivals that Jews from all over the world would travel to Jerusalem for. Originally, it was called the Feast of Weeks, which is what you'll see it referred to in Leviticus chapter 23 and verses 15 through 16. And, um, but it was, and it was called that because it took place seven weeks or 50 days after Passover. So that's actually why we refer to it as Pentecost, uh, Penta there, referring to the 50. So it's, it's 50 days after Passover. Now this was a big deal because it came at a time when people had been harvesting their fields. And so this was a, a really exciting festival. This is something you wanted to be at. This is, it was associated with worshiping God in thanksgiving for what he had provided. Now at this point in history, uh, Pentecost was also significant because it was considered and celebrated as the anniversary of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. 
Now, the timing of all that, uh, all that went on here, is significant, and we'll take some time in our third point to look at why that matters. But for now, what I really want to bring to your attention is to see the way that God was at work equipping the church with power through his own presence. So let's take a close look at what actually happened here on this day. Luke tells us that when this day arrived, the disciples were all together in one place. Uh, They were doing what they had been doing since Jesus was taken up into heaven, gathering together as one in one accord, presumably devoting themselves to prayer, when suddenly, Luke tells us, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and we're told that it filled the entire house where these disciples were sitting. And then we are told that divided tongues as of fire appeared on them, appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and that they were filled with the Holy Spirit and actually began to speak in other languages or other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, when Jesus had sent his disciples back to Jerusalem, you might remember he told them that they were going to receive the promise of the Father, a promise that went back to the days of John the Baptist, who had told the crowds who were following him that one was coming after him who was mightier than he. Whereas John the Baptist baptized with water, preparing people for the coming of the kingdom, calling people to repentance, this one, John declared, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So this baptism we see fell on the disciples according to John's word and according to Jesus' promise on the day of Pentecost. This is where we see the church receiving power from God taking its first real steps as the body of Christ, witnessing to the world about the gospel, the good news of what Christ had done. Now, as we read what Luke records for us in these verses, it's important that we interpret these events through the lens of what Jesus had said about the Spirit and why he was sent. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus tells his disciples that they are going to receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them. This is how they were going to be effective ambassadors for the gospel. They were going to be equipped by God himself. His presence was going to come on them. The power of the church was in God's presence in and with his people through the Holy Spirit. And this divine presence is signaled for us here in at least two important ways. First, Luke tells us that there was a sound like a mighty rushing wind which filled the house. Now, as English speakers, we uh, have words to distinguish between uh, breath and wind and spirit, but Hebrew and Greek actually don't make such a distinction. And the scripture actually uses that interplay uh, to its advantage to describe the mystery of the life-giving work of the spirit. Um, The scholar James M. Boyce comments that in scripture, the spirit of God is portrayed as the creative, moving, dynamic breath of God. For example, if we look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, we're told how the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then God begins to create things in this world that he has made. Likewise, Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3 that if he wanted to enter the kingdom of God, then he had to be born again. Not in a physical way. Nicodemus thinks Jesus is out of his mind. He says, how can I enter my mother's womb again? He shows that he's missed the point. 
But Jesus, we see, was speaking to Nicodemus that he had to be born again in a spiritual way. A new creation had to take place. A work which God does in people's hearts through his spirit. Jesus told Nicodemus, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of spirit. So this sound of rushing wind, which came down from heaven into this house, was so much more than an attention-getting device that was meant to draw these crowds in Jerusalem to this place. It was the sound of God filling his people with his spirit, making his presence dwell among them in a way that was unlike anything that had happened before, equipping them to speak the good news of the gospel. Now, the second symbol that communicates God's presence with his people in this passage is that of these divided tongues of fire, which Luke tells us appeared to the disciples and then rested on each one of them. Now, fire is often used in the Old Testament to represent God's presence. Uh, You can think about instances like when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. We're told that the bush itself was not consumed, which means that the fire itself was was self-sufficient. It was God. It was a picture to Moses of God's presence. We also see uh, fire as a symbol of God's presence when God leads Israel out of Egypt, going before them as a pillar of smoke during the day and as a pillar of fire at night. When Moses was on Mount Sinai, uh, God's holy presence was represented on the mountain with fire and with thunder. And the author of Hebrews even goes so far as to say, our God is a consuming fire in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 29. So these divided tongues of fire which came on the gathered church at Pentecost were intended to symbolize God's presence. Not just how he is with his people corporately, but also how he, is, his, he, he abides with believers individually. It shows how God had come to equip his people with power through his Holy Spirit. We see that God kept his promise. And we see that the church was all filled with his spirit so that they could go about this task of declaring the mighty works of God through Christ to everyone who was gathered there. This was a spectacular moment in the birth of the church, a moment which was meant to validate what was being said in their testimony to the gospel as Peter interprets for the crowds later on in verse 33, which we'll get, at, we'll get to later, not, not today. Now, there's a lot of debate, I don't have to tell you, there's a, there's a lot of debate in the church today about the significance of Pentecost and what it means for believers. A lot is, has been said about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, a lot has been said about speaking in tongues, and really, we should be more focused on what it means here to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and we should be focused on the purpose for why the Spirit came as he did on this day. It is important that we see that God has equipped the church with the power of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, first and foremost, so that they would bear witness about who Jesus is. In John chapter 15, verses 26 and 27, Jesus says, When the Helper comes, as speaking of the Spirit, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he 
will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Jesus goes on to tell us in John chapter 16 that after he, he, he said he told his disciples that after he had returned to the Father that he would send the Spirit who would convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment and that the Spirit would guide the church into all truth, glorifying Christ, taking what is his and declaring it to us. So, contrary to what has been said by some, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not about tongues or special spiritual gifts. It has, it has to do instead with God's identifying us with Christ through his work of regeneration. It is through that spiritual rebirth that the work of Christ is applied to us so that we are identified with him the same way as when he identified himself with us at his baptism. The power of the Holy Spirit which fell on the church on the day of Pentecost and which filled them with the ability to testify to the fact that Jesus was in fact the Christ that he, that he was risen and exalted at the right hand of God, was intended to be a testimony to the world that this is true. And while, yes, the church was filled with the Spirit, and as they were filled with the Spirit, they spoke in different tongues as he gave them utterance, we see that it was the message that they spoke which had the power to save, not the tongues themselves. Now, why does all that matter? It matters because it is so easy for us to read a spectacular event such as this and to get off track about understanding why the Spirit has been given to us in the first place. God fills His church with the Spirit. He filled His church with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost for the key purpose of fulfilling the word of His promise and to the effect of exalting King Jesus as the Savior of the world. So, while I don't think that we're intended to read the, this about the day of Pentecost and to understand from Luke that the experience that the church had that day is intended to be normative for the church today, I do think that it, 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 it announced in a very special way that the power of the kingdom of Christ was at hand. It set the church on a course for declaring the mystery of redemption to a lost and dying world. And that is the priority of this day. If we lose sight of that purpose, then we really have lost sight of the priority of the Holy Spirit, which is to exalt Christ in his glory. And so that's what I want to look at now in our second point. In our second point, we see a promised people. Now, from what Luke has told us, we know that the church was originally gathered in private when the Spirit came and filled them. But from what we see in verse 6, this sound of this mighty rushing wind attracted the attention of people from all over the city. Luke explains in verse 5 that there were people from all over the world who were staying in Jerusalem. And he says that these were devout men from every nation underhand, uh, under heaven. In the ebb and flow of world history, uh, Jews had made their way across the landscape of the whole Roman Empire. Uh, the devout men that Luke has in mind were people who were either native Jews or who had been converted to Judaism, who had traveled from wherever they were living in the world to Jerusalem for this festival. We get an idea of how diverse this crowd is from verses 9 through 11, since Luke tells us that there were Parthians, uh, Parthians uh, Medes, Elamites, the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, uh, Egypt, 
the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, which is very specific, and even visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. That's a lot of people, a lot of nations being represented there. Luke goes into such great detail about the diversity of this group, I think in part because in it we see how God had determined to exalt the name of Christ in all the earth. Already we see the stage is being set for people from every nation under heaven to hear the gospel. But in this moment, Luke specifies, and I think we're meant to understand specifically, that the crowd that was gathered at this house consisted mostly, if not entirely, of Jews and Jewish converts. And there's a good reason for that having to do with God's promise to gather his people to himself. It was clear to everyone that something amazing had happened at this place. And while initially Luke indicates that this crowd gathered together at the house because they heard the sound of this rushing wind and they wanted to know what was going on, he tells us that they were even more amazed and astonished at what they were hearing. In fact, he says they were bewildered because each person was hearing the disciples speaking to them in their own native language. Now, Something that we may not know that the people of uh, Luke's day did know is that Galileans were not exactly looked at as sophisticated. They were typically looked at as your backwoods, redneck, uneducated people. So when these people heard how the disciples were speaking to them in their own language, they were even more amazed because they recognized these guys don't know these languages. These guys, we can barely understand them when they're speaking Aramaic. But Pentecost was an important day because of the way that the Holy Spirit filled the disciples. But it was also important because it was a day when God gathered his people back together from all the places they had been spun out into in the world. Something new is going on here. Something astonishing and amazing. But we see that before the gospel goes into all the world, God is here drawing his people from every nation under heaven to himself to behold the glory of the promised Messiah. It's the fulfillment of the psalmist's cry. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. It's, it's God accomplishing what he says in Ezekiel chapter 36 when he declares to the house of Israel, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I, am, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. Here at Pentecost, we have not only the gathering of Israel as it has been spun out to the nations, but we also have that outpouring of the spirit which God had promised, proclaiming salvation through Jesus Christ. 
This is a big day. This is a moment when promises are upheld and a new path is laid forward for the church. When we think about Jesus' commission to his disciples, we usually focus on how he sends us out, even to the furthest reaches of the world. Even this morning, we have prayed for our brother and sister Tom and Anna Johnson as they serve the church in Cambodia. And it's right to think that way because God does have a global purpose. God has called us to speak the glories of Christ in every corner of the world. But as we read about what God was doing specifically at Pentecost, we have to see there's something significant happening at this moment in Jerusalem in this transition between the Old Covenant where the call was to come and to see the glories of God in a place and in the New Covenant where the glory of God is manifest to all people as his people go and take this message of good news to them. In John 4, we're told about a conversation that Jesus had with a Samaritan woman in which he told her, you worship what you do not know. We, speaking of the Jews, we worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So we know from Scripture that God has determined to save people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. We know that Jesus' authority is over the whole earth, not just a region. But the reason the day of Pentecost matters and how God drew these Jews and these proselytes who had been dispersed throughout the whole earth back together is because of the way that it displays how God was working to bring that salvation about. The message of salvation began at the house of Israel in Jerusalem and then it spread through Judea and Samaria and then to the world. Now at this point, the church didn't quite understand how God meant to include Samaritans and Gentiles in his household of faith. We'll get to that as we study more of the book of Acts. But we see that when the gospel did spread, not just to Jews, but to the rest of the world, one of the key features that convinced the church that God was in fact saving Gentiles in the same way he had saved them was that they received the Spirit in the same way that they did. That's going to be a key feature. Actually, Luke uses language that is, is very limited, and it only really shows up in those instances to say, these are the people of God. Now, before they could make that jump, before the church can make that jump, they had to experience that power for themselves. So while the day of Pentecost exalts God and his faithfulness to Israel to gather them together under the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ, it also set the stage for the expansion of that kingdom to the world according to God's purpose and God's plan. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is not something new. It is not something new, as if God just gave up on the old plan and came up with plan B. The story of redemption stretches to before when God had even laid the foundation of the earth. Since we are told in the book of Ephesians that he, that he, called, he chose us to save us in Christ before the foundation of the world was even laid, that we might be holy and blameless before him. So the book of Acts records the works of Christ in and through his church. It also helps us to understand what God has done throughout history to bring about our salvation. It helps us to understand our place now in the history of God's work of salvation. The the reason this is important 
is because it helps us to see our place in God in this story about God's faithfulness and God's glory. In fact, I think it humbles us since as we see how God kept faith with his covenant people, it ensures to us that he will not abandon the covenant promise he has given to us of eternal life. A promise which he has established through the work of Christ. So, brothers and sisters, the world is a big place, but there is nothing like the power of God which dwells with his people, which then equips us to speak the good news of salvation everywhere. So, so far we've talked about God, how he equipped his people with power, and we've seen God's commitment to gather his people back to himself. Now, in our third point, we want to look at the message that brings all of this together, proof in the prophecy. When the Holy Spirit filled the church and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, we see that they spoke words that had meaning. They weren't speaking unintelligible babbles. Rather, they were speaking words that people, the people who had gathered there together to hear them uh, were hearing and understood. Languages uh, and, and specifically having to do with the mighty works of God. And I think this is an important detail. Because while it's tempting to let our imaginations run wild at this point with what this must have sounded like, what it must have looked like, and draw all sorts of conclusions about spiritual gifts and how they work in the church today, we need to make sure not to miss Luke's main point. Why did God fill the church as he did to speak about his mighty works to the crowds in a language they could understand? He did it to prove that Jesus is indeed the Christ. The presence of the Holy Spirit with the church did three things, three important things. First, it identified these believers as God's people and authorized them to speak. Second, it signified to the crowd that something miraculous had happened here that could only be credited to the power of God. Third, it fulfilled God's promise and announced the arrival of a new covenant in Christ. Now, Luke doesn't record exactly what these brothers and sisters were saying to the crowd uh, as it gathered around them, except to say they were extolling the mighty works of God. He does record for us what Peter had to say when he explained to the crowd the significance of what was happening here. And we're going to look at Peter's sermon in depth over the next few weeks. For now, what I simply want uh, you to see about everything that happened here on this day, about the thing that brought these crowds running to this little house, what I want you to see is that all this happened for the purpose of exalting Jesus as Lord and Christ so that the people who heard this message might believe and be saved. The purpose of Pentecost is the glory of Christ, not the sound the people heard, not the tongues of fire that rested on Jesus' followers or the languages that they spoke in. Everything here happened for the sake of the glory of King Jesus. God poured out his spirit on these people at this time and at this place to accomplish just that. There are many religions out there. There are many takes uh, on the meaning of life, many worldviews that say this or that about what's true and what's not true. But Jesus tells us in John 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now let me ask you this. How do you know that what Jesus says about himself, that it is true? How do you know that it's true? Well, we know that it is true 
because the gospel has come to us not in word only, but in power. If you're a follower of Christ, then you know that the gospel is true because of the way it has changed you. Because of the way that your heart was convicted of your sin. And because you had seen that your only hope was to trust in Christ to save you. To have his righteousness as your own. You know it is true because the priorities of your life have changed. Because you don't do things now hoping somehow to earn God's favor. To earn your way to him. But you do what you do because your heart burns for him with a love that you just can't explain. All of that is true because God in his mercy sent his Holy Spirit into the hearts of his people. Because God upheld his promise to give us a new heart and a new spirit to make us his people and to dwell with us. The main indicator that God is alive and at work in our hearts is that his priority of exalting Christ is our priority. His love has become our love, and his mission has become our mission. As we think about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be part of his church, to be part of his body, to be be faithful as a local church corporately, we have to look at a passage like this and come away convinced that if we want to be faithful, then we have to live according to the power and the priority of the Spirit that is at work in us now that Christ is exalted at the right hand of the Father. The good news is that Jesus is in fact Lord and Christ. He died as a payment for sins. He rose again on the third day, triumphing over death. He rules and he reigns even now at the right hand of God. He has called us to repentance and faith with the promise that all who trust in him shall be saved. And then he has commissioned us to be his witnesses in the world, equipping us with his spirit to empower us for that work. May God continue to strengthen us for this task. Let's pray. Oh Lord, this morning we have looked at the record of one of the most amazing works you have done in and through your church. Father, as we think about the day of Pentecost, it is something that it's hard to imagine. And yet, in the trustworthiness of your word, we see how it testifies to the true power of Christ, a, a power which we ourselves, if we are in Christ, have experienced because you have worked through your spirit to unveil our, our eyes and to, to lay bare our hearts so that we see our sin. You have shown us the beauty and the glory of Christ. You have called us to yourself. And so, Father, as we think about your, the power that is it, that your power at work in the world, upholding it and working in it for the glory of Jesus, we ask that you would equip us with such power to be faithful followers of Jesus. We thank you, Father, that you have uh, sent your spirit into the world and on your people. And we ask that we would live according to his leading and guiding so that Jesus might be exalted in all the earth. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would stand and we sing our final song, our song of response, and we sing the glory of Christ. And, and